So the last couple weeks, we've kind of covered the major brushstrokes of Christianity. If you've missed it, head on iTunes, you can catch it, um, to paint the picture of reality so that we can see 2020. Um, And what we did the last two weeks is we applied the major brushstrokes to Scripture so that we could pull from Scripture what Scripture would have us see, and that we could then apply it to our individual stories. So that's what we've been doing. It's going to shift here for the next six weeks. And then in January, it's going to shift again. Okay? Because I want to give you... It's like examining a diamond, right? Like if you just examine a diamond, for those of you that are really wealthy and examine a lot of diamonds, if you examine a diamond from only one direction, you only get a little bit of the prism. But if you want to see the diamond clearly or to see it 2020, you've got to examine it from all sides. So I'm really doing my best to kind of give you a fuller picture of what's happening. So this week we're going to start diving into a series of lies that you live in in the culture. And so I'm actually not even going to open my Bible during this teaching time. I'm just going to present you the lie. And then what's going to happen is you're going to go back into transformation groups. You can turn the lights off. You can go, we're going to go back into transformation groups. And you're going to open the Bibles there and examine the lie from Scripture to see what Scripture has to say about it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to cover five or six lies that are very kind of American-centric that I want you to be aware of. Because you are living in the midst of them. And for many of you, you don't know a world differently. So I want you to be aware of them. This first lie that we're going to cover, well really the first three lies that we're going to cover are taken from the book that I am enthralled with right now called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's excellent. If you're a senior in the room, I highly recommend it in all your free time. Okay, All your free time. Check it out. If you're a parent listening to this podcast, I highly suggest you pick it up. I think it's imperative that you do. Um, But today's lie is your first fill in the blank, and it's what the culture believes. And it's this. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. I know. But the lie is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And you'll see how that's played out. It's really addressing the issue of safetyism. So you live in a world where safety is paramount. And the moment something is deemed unsafe, we will do our best to make sure that our precious belongings, namely you, the children of America, are safe and take care for. And I think, actually, I am almost certain of, because all the psych data is coming in on it, that we've taken it way too far. And we're going to see that today in today's lesson. So let me pray for us. We're going to dive right in. Feel free to take notes. I kind of left you room as we go through each of these different points. Lord Jesus, as we break down these really kind of meta topics, these topics of looking at the culture, seeing what the culture has to say to us about reality, and then us in turn responding with what scripture has to say, to to say, Lord, I ask that you give us the wisdom And the ability to bear witness to your truth, which is truth. And then, Lord, be able to see the world clearly and interact with it because of it. In your son's name, amen. At a parent meeting, at a preschool, all the parents are getting together to discuss the rules before the start of the year. And based on the amount of time spent on the discussion, this one rule was the most important. They had spent the last 15 minutes on it. And that was the rule of no nuts. 
no nuts. Greg Luganoff continues in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Because of the risks to children with peanut allergies, there was an absolute prohibition in bringing anything containing nuts into the building. Of course, for those of you that are already you know, poking holes in my argument, peanuts are legumes, not nuts. But some kids have allergies to tree nuts, too. So along with peanuts and peanut butter, all nuts and nut products were banned. And to be extra safe, the school also banned anything produced in a factory that processed nuts. So many kinds of dried fruits and other snacks were prohibited, too. Finally, one of the parents asked the obvious question, stood up in the middle of the meeting and said, Is anyone's kid allergic to nuts? If there isn't, maybe we can loosen up on this list. The administration was clearly annoyed and told no parents to respond to that question. She, the, the administration said, don't put anyone on the spot. Don't make any parent feel uncomfortable. Regardless of whether anyone in the class is affected, these are the school rules. And think about it. You can't blame people for being cautious. There's a re- reason child cares carry insurance. However... There is something you should know about the peanut allergy phenomenon that's taken place actually before your lifetime. In the mid-1990s, only four in a thousand kids was allergic to peanuts. So in a preschool of about 100, which is what this was, there was actually a very distinct possibility that no one was allergic. But by 2008, using the same survey, same measures, the number jumped to 14 out of every 1,000. It had tripled. Which means at least one kid probably had a peanut allergy. Why the jump? Why had the allergy tripled? The response to the existence of the peanut allergy was compassion. I grew up in the 90s. I remember this. Kids are vulnerable, so we must protect our little ones at all costs. But little did the compassionate and power know that it was their compassion that compounded the problem. In February 2015, an authoritative study was published. The LEAP, Learning Early About Peanut Allergies study, was based on the hypothesis of this. Regular eating of peanut-containing products when starting during infancy will elicit a protective immune response instead of an allergic immune response. So they were stating that their hypothesis was if we introduced peanuts to kids at an early stage, they would actually be less allergic to it, okay? 640 pairs of parents were recruited for the study that had newborns that were high risk of developing a peanut allergy, okay? Half were told to follow the standard advice. Do not touch anything that involves peanuts. That's the standard advice. The other half were given a snack that was both peanut butter and a little puff corn, because I have children, it works, Um, that they could eat three times a week to introduce peanuts to them. When the kids turned five years old, they were all tested to see if they were allergic to peanuts. At this point, I know you all are dying to know what the results were. Among the children who had been protected from peanuts, don't touch it at all costs, 17% had developed a peanut allergy. And the group that had deliberately exposed to peanut products, only 3% had developed the allergy. As one of the researchers said in the interview, for decades, allergists have been recommending that young infants avoid consuming allergic foods such as peanuts to prevent food allergies. Our findings suggest that this advice was incorrect and may have contributed to the rise in the peanut and other food allergies. It seems the more we protect ourselves from food allergens, the more susceptible we are to them. 
This follows, for some of you that follow um, allergies, the hygiene hypothesis, which states that countries become, as countries become cleaner, they actually create a more allergic population, which is true. Third world countries suffer much less allergies to food or anything compared to first world countries. And as those change over time, as they go, become cleaner environments, they develop more allergies. Well, what does this have to do with the idea that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker? This is the link given by developmental psychologist Alison Gopnik. This is what she says. Thanks to hygiene, antibiotics, and too little outdoor play, children don't get exposed to the microbes they once did. This may lead them to develop immune systems that overreact to substances that actually aren't threatening, causing allergies. In the same way, this is your next fill in the blank. By shielding children from every possible risk, we may lead them to react with exaggerated fear to situations that aren't risky at all and isolate them from the adult skills that they will one day have to master. I'll say that again. By shielding children from every possible risk, we may lead them to react with exaggerated fear to situations that aren't risky at all and isolate them from the adult skills that they will one day have to master. Your generation is mocked on SNL and at ball games. They even had like a millennial night at the ballpark uh, last season. It was very funny. You know, people had to take selfies and they had a safe space for people. And I mean, it was very funny, right? Um, but unfortunately, millennials get that bad rap, but it's really your generation, which is I generation, that, that kind of focuses on. Um, your generation is known for concepts like trigger phrases, safe spaces, safe spaces, and emotional trauma. Like those are words in your vernacular. And like the peanut butter problem exasperated in the 1990s from wanting to protect our kids, it is having a negative effect, and you are living in the outcome of it. You're living in the outcome of it. The modern obsession with protecting young people from feeling unsafe is, we believe, one of the several causes of the rapid rise in rates of adolescent depression, anxiety, and suicide. I think these are all linked to it. That's why you need to be aware of it. That's why we're discussing it here, so that we can have a Christian view of it. Unfortunately, we're now just seeing the scientific fallout as we study the culture. And you are right smack dab in the middle of it. Even when I was in high school, a mere 15 years ago, we didn't have safe spaces, emotional trauma, or trigger phrases. They literally, that, those weren't words The lie spelled out plainly is this. If you experience a trigger word or an unsafe idea or are emotionally hurt, it can have long-term negative effect on your life. That's the lie. But let's be real. There is some truth to that. If you experience those things, it can have a long-term negative effect on your life. That's true. But removing those same things can also have a long-term effect on your life, namely, not knowing how to deal with it when it happens. Let's take a look at the concept of safe spaces. This is one of my favorite. This is becoming more common in high schools as it trickles down from the universities. If you hold a controversial opinion in schools, you can't support it publicly. 
certain T-shirts that states one's opinion, even if it's ranging everywhere from a pro-Trump T-shirt to a Colin Kaepernick T-shirt. Sometimes they'll ask you to remove it because you wouldn't want to offend somebody and cause emotional trauma. This is a word that is new, believe it or not, to the English vernacular. Emotional trauma is the outcome of, outcome of something called concept creep. You're going to go home tonight and your parents are going to be like, what did you learn about tonight? You're going to be like, concept creep. And they're going to be like, what? And they're going to be like, oh, it's like postdoctorate work in psychology. But though that's what we learned. And, and, but you need to understand this concept of concept creep. Where we apply words to things that it didn't originally mean. So trauma used to mean, according to all the scientific literature, it would describe a physical agent causing physical damage. So if Jay hit me in the face and I now have a bruise, that would be trauma. A physical agent causing physical damage. Okay? Now it is morphed to include anything, and this is the new vernacular, anything experienced by an individual as physical or emotionally harmful with lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental uh, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Notice the small shift. We have moved something that could be factually determined by reality, the word trauma, namely a cut or a bruise, into something that is super subjective. You have hurt my feelings. This is why, this is why when we discussed truth, a couple weeks ago, in week two, that was so important. The moment we move truth into the subjective area, it becomes absurd for everyone. That's why it was week two. If you don't have a foundation on truth, you're going to believe anything. Okay? The moment somebody does something that's different than what you want, it can be judged as Potentially dangerous to a person, all because you have a subjective feeling. Because anytime students feel a negative emotion, they can suddenly label it as emotional trauma. And no one can disagree with them. And if you do, you are causing emotional trauma to that person. Do you see the snowball? If you have a different opinion than someone... It shouldn't be expressed for the safety of someone else's emotions. This is literally where we're at. You're in the midst of it. This played out at Brown University when they had a debate on whether America really is a rape culture. If truth is absolute and found in reality, then you can have the discussion. You can actually have it. One speaker at the debate, because debates have differing opinions, had the position that no, America is not a rape culture. She a feminist, left-leaning liberal professor, believed that by contrasting the United States with countries in which rape is systematic and tolerated, this is, for example, in parts of Afghanistan, women are married against their will, they are murdered for men's honor, they are raped, and when they're raped, they're arrested for it, and then they're shunned by their family afterwards. She says, now that's a rape culture. The speaker has firsthand experience of sexual violence against her, believes it is untrue and unhelpful to tell American women that they live in a rape culture. That was her premise. Now, I am not supporting one side of the argument at all. That is not on tonight's discussion. 
Okay? What I am saying, though, is that we should be able to have these conversations. That's all I'm saying. We should have these conversations. It's important. But her belief that we don't live in a rape culture was emotionally traumatic for some students. Brown students attempted to get McElroy, the speaker, disinvited from the debate in order to protect their peers from such damage. Do you see the concept creep on even that word? That was the language they used. Damage. They didn't disinvite her. Good for Brown University. But they believed the lie. So instead, Brown University set up a competing talk to happen at the same time as the debate that would not feature the opposing side of the argument. Further, I am not kidding. What I'm about to say, I'm not kidding. Brown students created a safe space where anyone who felt triggered could recuperate and get help. The room was equipped with cookies, coloring books, bubbles, Play-Doh, calming music, pillows, blankets, and a video of frolicking puppies, as well as students and staff members purportedly trained to deal with emotional trauma. Here's the sad part. We know from the psychological data, we know it, that helping people overcome emotional problems is not by removing the problem completely. Like peanut butter example. Helping someone overcome an emotional problem is showing it to them in small doses so that they can better deal with it. Psychologists have known this, gosh, decades. Todd was here, you know, tell us 100 years, something like that, right? Take fear of spiders for, or heights, for example. It is not removing spiders or heights that helps someone overcome it. It is introducing heights or spiders to someone in gradually bigger increments that help someone overcome their fear. This is your next fill in the blank. Avoiding triggers is a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, not a treatment for it. It's a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, not a treatment for it. Richard McCauley, the director of clinical training in Harvard's Department of Psychology, says this. Trigger warnings are counter-therapeutic because they encourage avoidance of reminders of trauma. And avoidance maintains PTSD. Severe emotional reactions triggered by course material are a signal that students need to prioritize their mental health and obtain evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapies that will help them overcome PTSD. These therapies involve gradually systematic exposure to traumatic memories until their capacity to trigger distresses, distress diminishes. Safety is not always the best policy. Lukanoff says, a culture that allows the concept of safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to become strong and healthy. I'm going to put this bluntly. I think David can speak to it too because he's lived through it as well. You are not living in a strong emotional culture anymore. You're not. You turn on YouTube and watch any arguments on the street corners from whatever side of the political spectrum you want, you're going to see 
that this is not an emotionally healthy culture. You are in one that is dominated by feelings. Absolutely dominated. And feelings are subjective by their very nature. And more importantly, feelings can be wrong. Well, what does this have to do with Christianity? What does it have to do with the Bible say about this? How can we influence culture in C2020? That's what we're going to discuss in transformation groups. Because we want to really... How do we speak to this? How do we speak to this? This is the culture you're living in. So how do we take Christianity and we interact with that culture? Okay? We're going to dismiss into groups. Head out.